You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. The subject we are looking at today from Matthew 19 statistically has affected 15 or 50% of the marriages in the room. If it affects 50% of the marriages in the room, then think about the number of kids that it has affected as well. Statistics tell us that every year over 1 million children will experience this subject. The subject is that of divorce. And in our text today, Jesus tackles this issue that many people have experienced in their lives. So if we think about our lives, I think we could probably go around the room and maybe 95% of our church family has in some way been affected by divorce, whether has experienced divorce, a family member, or you come from a family of divorced parents. And so Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Jesus has just finished his fourth teaching section. He has five teaching sections that he's going to do in the book of Matthew. And we know that from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 1, when it says, now when Jesus had finished, remember that is Matthew's literary clue that he's finished with another teaching section and we're moving to just sort of the life and the flow of Jesus and his conversations that he's having before we get to our final teaching section. Um, And he has talked in Matthew 18 around this question that the disciples ask him. And the question that they ask him is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus gives a teaching based off that question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so what we did as a church family over the last couple of Sundays is we looked at that through the lens of we as the church are part of the kingdom of heaven because we have submitted to the rule and reign of Christ in our heart and our lives today. And so we asked the question, what does a great church look like? And we saw six marks of a great church and those marks were things like humility and hospitality, protection, love, restoration, and forgiveness. And I think it is fitting that Matthew, as he's laying out the life of Jesus and his book that he's writing about Jesus, that he would finish Matthew 18 with these two marks of restoration and forgiveness and then go into this idea of marriage and divorce and singleness with the guise of forgiveness and restoration. So look with me at Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And the large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. 
So Matthew notes for us that there's large crowds still following Jesus, right? That his popularity is still pretty high in this moment as he's months away from the cross. His popularity is still going pretty strong. There's large crowds that are following him. And so verse 3 says that the Pharisees came up to Jesus as these large crowds are following him and he's healing them. And they tested him. Now, why did the Pharisees feel the need to test Jesus? Because they are jealous of Jesus. They're jealous of his popularity. They're jealous of what God is doing through him. And so their desire is to trip Jesus up. It's, picture it like a, 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 an interviewer who interviews someone and you listen to that interview and you know that they're asking questions not because they really care to know what the person believes about a certain policy or a certain thing. They're asking questions why? So they can catch them in their words, right? So that they can have a headline to write about the next day on their article that they have to write or their blog that they're going to put out. This is in essence what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to catch Jesus in some contradictions in his teachings, in his life, so that they can say to the people, look, he's not who you thought he was, right? That he's not really God. He, he's not really this prophet that has come, that, that he, he is, he's not who he says he is. And that's the case in this moment. So here's how they choose to test Jesus. They ask him this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So, so this is where they choose to go with Jesus. As they're trying to discredit him, they're like, well, let's talk about divorce. And so they say to him, Jesus, is it lawful to get divorced for any reason? Now, just to give us context, in Jesus' time, there was two sort of schools of thought. There was this school of thought known as Shemai, and he was the rabbi who taught this, that you could get a divorce for any gross indecency was the term that they would use, though not necessarily adultery. That you could get a divorce for any reason if it was this gross indecency, and it, and it didn't have necessarily, you could, adultery could be a part of it, but it could be other gross indecencies as well. So that was what we would refer to as the more conservative thought of the day was the Shema'i rabbi and, and his school of thought. So people followed him. Then you had Halil, another school of thought from this rabbi named Halil, who basically said you can get divorced for any reason. That hence the question, can you get divorced for any reason? His perspective was, if your wife burned a meal, that was grounds for divorce, any cause. And we laugh, but that really was the reality of it. Like if you came home and the meal was burnt and you weren't satisfied with it, you had the right to divorce. They would even go as far as to say, if another woman caught your eye, she was prettier than your wife, that you could get divorced for that reason as well. So again, you can see why they're asking Jesus this question because they're trying to put him in one of these two camps. They're trying to put him in the Shema'i camp or they're trying to put him in the Halil camp. Which one is Jesus? Is he conservative or is he liberal, right? They're trying to put him in one of the two camps so that they can have a headline to discredit who he is. Look at how Jesus responds to them in verses four, five, and six. Jesus answers and says, have you not read? Now, who are we talking to here, right? 
the Pharisees. Do you think the Pharisees had read it? What he's about to say? Sure. It, what it is, is the Pharisees, they knew the law. They knew the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of your Old Testament. They knew those things backwards and forwards. In fact, some of them probably had it memorized. So when Jesus says, have you not read? I, I got a sense in which there's a little bit of just mocking them. Like, obviously, they have read it. He, he's, in essence, it would be like talking to somebody who's a theologian and saying, don't you read your Bible? Right? That's what he is saying to them. Don't you know your Bible? Have you not read? And then look at what he quotes to them. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus says to them when they're asking, is it lawful to get a divorce for any reason? any cause, Jesus says, what does the Bible say? He takes them to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And he quotes scripture to them. Jesus answers them with what does the Bible say? He is using the word of God as his authority. So before we get to what he said, I want to remind us of the action that we should follow like Jesus does. And as we think about our lives and we're asking questions about culture and about how we should live our lives, the question we always have to come back to is what does the Bible say? When I'm trying to make a decision in my life, and Jesus is modeling this for us. He doesn't say, well, here's my opinion. And although he's God and he could have said, this is my opinion, and it would have been the most important thing, he takes them back to the word of God. And so as you're thinking through decisions in life, relationship decisions, financial decisions, all those kind of decisions that we work through in life, you have to ask yourself the question, what does the Bible say? And Jesus modeled that for us when he answered the question, is it lawful for you to get a divorce for any reasons? And he says, didn't you read in the Bible? In Genesis 1, 24 and chapter 2 and verse, or Genesis 1, 27 and chapter 2 and verse 24 that God created them male and female. God's original design for marriage is one man and one woman. Right? So I, I, it's sad that we live in a culture that that would be a controversial statement. But because the Bible is our final authority for our life and practice, it's clear. In this moment, Jesus could have said, I can sort of go away from this because I'm God. But no, what does he say? Based off the authority of the word and my authority as the son of God, God made them male and female. God's grand design is one man and one woman coming together in Genesis chapter 2 for life. 
That they leave their father and mother and they cleave to each other. They become one flesh. And what God brings together, he says, man can't separate. God was the first officiant of the wedding in the Bible, right? In Genesis chapter 2. And God created it. God is the originator of it. Therefore, God can define it. And marriage is one man and one woman for life. And Jesus takes these Pharisees who are asking a question about divorce and says, what was God's original plan? God's original plan, male and female, one man, one woman for life. So the Pharisees are like, ah, that didn't work out the way I thought. So verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away. So they're like, all right, we got what Jesus did. That didn't go quite as well. We thought he'd go with these two camps, but instead he quoted scripture to us, which throws us off here. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna push back on scripture because they didn't know the word. And they're like, didn't Moses, who was the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, didn't he say something about divorce and divorce? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, didn't he, they use the term, didn't he command for divorce to happen? So let's go there and see what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. This is a law concerning divorce that God gives through Moses to the children of Israel. This is how they're going to live in a way that pleases the Lord. This is the text that they're thinking of when they're saying to him, didn't Moses command one to give a divorce and to send her away? So here's what Moses says. When a man takes a wife and he marries her, if, he then, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if he goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies. So she's been married twice, picture it, married once, he didn't want her, goes to another guy, he doesn't want her, or he dies. He says in verse 4, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So in essence, Moses is not commanding divorce, but he is allowing in the situation that we, he is writing about here that a, a woman who would get a divorce for some indecency and marry another man, that the man she was married to first, she can't go back to. Part of the reason for that was protection for the woman because those men would abuse them and use them and that was the culture of the day. And so her not being able to go back to this guy was like, oh, I regret that decision that I got rid of my wife and, and I'm going to take her back. She can't go back to them. So he had them write a certificate of divorce. So they're asking Jesus, all right, did Moses, didn't he command this? And look at how Jesus responds 
to their idea that Moses commanded that they should get a divorce. He said to them, because, verse 8 and 9, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, that's a key word, they said Moses commanded. Jesus said, no, 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 no. He didn't command divorce. He allowed divorce. Whoever, or or verse 8, sorry, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Jesus is upping the ante here, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here was Jesus' response to their question. He says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He is saying divorce is a result of sin. Sin is the reason. That's the hardness of heart. Sin is the reason that divorce happens. But this wasn't how God originally designed it to work. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. This was not a part of God's plan. But he's allowed divorce because of sin. So is divorce possible? Yes, but it is not inevitable. Because of the good news of the gospel. So he is saying to them, divorce is permissible. In this situation, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that is the idea of you can get a divorce if the person you are married to commits sexual immorality, except for sexual immorality. That word is one word in the Greek. It's pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. And it covers a various kinds of unsanctioned sexual intercourse. It's an array of fornication. That's sleeping with somebody that's not your wife. Adultery, sleeping with another man's wife. Homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and prostitution. All of these would fall under that idea of sexual immorality. So he says, divorce is permissible in moments of sexual immorality. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's another passage there where Paul talks about that divorce is permissible if you live with an unbelieving spouse who abandons you. Basically, because of your faith, they turn their back on you, that you can get a divorce for that reason as well. So, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, remarriage is only permissible if both parties have experienced a biblical divorce or we would add the death of a spouse. So pretty heavy stuff here, right? Jesus is saying this, this is the plan. The plan is from the beginning was one man and one woman for life. But because of the hardness of our heart, because of sin in our lives, I will allow for divorce under the circumstance of sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, abandonment. Those are the reasons that you can biblically get a divorce. Now, that doesn't have to be your decision, right? 
In fact, the best decision would be to do all that you can to stay in your marriage, to fight for your marriage. If you are going to come to us as pastors and ask for counsel about divorce, I just want you to know that we're never going to recommend someone get a divorce, even if there's biblical grounds for it. And there's a reason for that, because there's a lot of ramifications with that. And you have to think through all of those ramifications that come with it. And so it's, it's easy for us to be like, well, yeah, I mean, it says sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7, it says abandonment, right? Like, and so you can go through with that. But, but it, you have to deal with the ramifications of that. And so we're always going to, by God's grace, encourage you to do all that you can. And we understand there's going to be moments that maybe that's not feasible in your relationship, in your marriage, but we're going to encourage you that way. Why? Because it wasn't so from the beginning, right? Because God had designed it for be one man and one woman for life, which again, this is why Matthew 18 is a big deal, right? Because this happens not just at church, this happens in our home. So if your husband is sinning against you, go to him. If your wife is sinning against you, you go to them and say, hey, you're sinning against me. And here's what I see. And if it, they don't listen, take somebody with you. Right? And then if you go to them and they acknowledge that, then we go to the forgiveness side. And because you've been forgiven so much, you forgive as well. That's why I think it's really strategic that Matthew throws in this story of Jesus right on the heels of this talk of restoration and forgiveness because that starts in our homes and it works out into our lives as a church family. Why does Jesus take marriage and divorce so seriously? Why is this such a big to him. Well, go with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. You get a glimpse at why marriage is a big deal. I mean, one, he's the originator of it, right? So that he's the creator of marriage. That's a big deal. But if you go to Ephesians 5, you get a clearer picture of why he would say this, why this sexual immorality, abandonment, those are the only reasons for Divorce and, and potentially re, remarriage. Here's why. Listen to Paul's instructions in Matthew or Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Wives, get who he's talking to. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the hes, husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Verse 24. Now listen. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So why is marriage such a big deal in Jesus' eyes, in God's eyes? Because our marriages represent Christ's relationship with the church. And so he's, Paul says, wives, as you submit, you follow the leadership of your husband's you're being an example to the people in the church and the world around you of how we as the church submit to Christ's leadership in our lives. 
So listen, I'm not the leader of this church. Pastor Bob's not the leader, Todd or Clint. None of the pastors are leaders of this church. Christ is the head of the church and we submit to his leadership in our lives and we model that for you as you follow our leadership in, 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 in the church. This is how we're to submit ourselves to Christ. And when we do that in our marriages, wives, it represents Christ well. Husbands, you don't get off the hook. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, this love is a sacrificial laying down your life for your wife love. And when I lay down my life for my wife, I'm showing to the world around me the difference Jesus has made in my life. I'm showing to the world around me what Jesus has done for us, the church. He has laid down his life. This is why marriage is a big deal. Because it's bigger than you and I. It's, it, it's bigger than, than us. It is an eternal picture of what Christ has done for us, the church. And our marriages represent that. So the disciples, as they're thinking through it, look at how they respond in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry they're like, we out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, if, 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 that, if that's the case, that there's this high standard of marriage, one man and one woman for life, and that you only separate that if, it, if there's sexual immorality or abandonment, if, if that's the case, then maybe the disciples are thinking in their heart, maybe it's better just not even to get married. And so Jesus, I love what he does here. He's like, well, let's talk about singleness then. And so verse 11 and 12, he talks about being single. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. I think he's talking in a, a sort of a, a double meaning here with the idea of only a believer is going to be able to take this idea of divorce and remarriage and thinking through marriage, right? Only a believer will be able to see that. But I think he's also talking about singleness as well, that, that some are called to be single all of life and to use their singleness for Christ. And so he's like, here's the deal. He uses the term eunuchs in verse 12. For there are eunuchs, so think singleness. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Again, saying, this is heavy stuff that I'm sharing with you, but let the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him receive it. So he gives us three types of singleness. The first is a physical singleness in the sense that you're born with some physical issues. And so you'll remain single your whole life because of those physical issues that you were born with. The second is circumstantial. And this is eunuchs who, this idea of, of circumstantial is Masters would have servants that they would place over their wives to serve their wives or to serve their daughters. And typically, they would castrate these men so that they wouldn't 
go after their wives, right? Sort of take away that desire that they would castrate these, these men. And so that's what he's saying here. Some of it's by men. It's circumstantial. Like you didn't choose that, but because of the, the job that you had, you, 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 you had that happen to you. And then the last one is a spiritual reason, reason for singleness. He says eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the gospel. These are the people who've chosen to use their singleness to serve God. Paul would commend singleness to you and I today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 34, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married man, woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, like it's a good thing to be single. Because in your singleness, you can use it to be wholly focused on the Lord. And that's what Jesus is saying here about these eunuchs, these single people who are saying, you know what, I'm going to use my singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In this dialogue with the Pharisees, Jesus again comes out unscathed by their attempt to discredit him. But in their attempt to discredit Jesus, he speaks directly to the single person, the married person, and the divorced person. And so let me finish our time together by speaking directly to those categories. If you're single in the room, Matthew 19 would say, use your singleness for the sake of the gospel. Use your singleness so that your heart can be undivided to Christ and his church, and his word, and what he is calling you to do. Can I remind you that the greatest person who ever lived, the most complete person that ever lived, wasn't married. His name was Jesus. And he didn't have to get married to become complete. You don't have to get married to become complete. God can use your singleness, but it's a choice that you have to make to say, I'm going to use my singleness for the sake of the gospel. That I want to take this opportunity where I'm not carried by having a husband or having a wife, and I can focus all my attention on Christ and his work, and I'm going to use everything in my life to that end. Use your singleness for the sake of the gospel. To the married person. I think Matthew 19 would call us to fight for your marriage for the sake of the gospel. Marriage, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is all about Jesus and the gospel. And his plan is for you to be together for your whole life. And in order for that to happen, you're going to have to fight for your marriage. Listen, married, being married is great. It is a gift from the Lord, but it also takes work. And you're going to have to fight for that. Husbands, you're going to have to lay down your life. 
You're going to have to turn off the TV. You're going to have to get off social media. You're going to have to look her in the eye. You're going to have to figure out what kind of love language she has. I know those things change with each month, right? But, but you still got to figure it out, right? You got to focus in and because you got to fight for it. Because it's the sake of the gospels on the line. And as Jesus laid down his life for us, the church, we should lay down our lives for our wives. Husbands, let's fight for our marriage for the sake of the gospel. To the divorced and not married, could I encourage you to use your singleness for the sake of the gospel? I know this is not the life that you chose for yourself. I know that as you dreamed about your marriage, you, the dream wasn't to someday get a divorce and to be where you're at today. I, I understand that. But could I encourage you not to become a bitter person who's angry about life and marriage and man and a woman and you're just angry, but that you would allow the hurt that has come in your life to push you into Christ and to know that he can take these horrible circumstances that you've experienced, the horrible thing that you have gone through, and he can use it for the sake of the gospel. So I would encourage you, use your singleness now. You didn't ever think you would be back in this seat. But you're there, so use your singleness for the sake of the gospel. To the divorced and remarried, I would say, fight for your marriage for the sake of the gospel. Listen, you know this. It's going to be harder for you. You read statistics, second marriages fail at a rate of 60 to 70%. Third marriages fail at a rate of 70 to 80%. And so if you're remarried, it's going to take hard work, but it's worth it for the sake of the gospel. So fight for your marriage. You can't go back. Even if what you got divorced for was an unbiblical reason, you can still move forward together and say, we're going to fight for our marriage for the sake of the gospel. I want to end our time together by reading from an article that I came across this week by a lady by the name of Laura Baxter. And uh, 10 years into her marriage, she experienced a divorce. She had three children. It's been 20 years since that time. and She's gotten remarried and has older kids now. And in this article, the headline of the article or the, the title is Take It From Me, don't get divorced. And she ends it with this now what section. And, and here's, here's why I want to read it to you. Because I think she gets it. And you can feel the angst in her heart of Jesus' words. But also her heart. And so I want you to hear Laura Baxter's heart for us today. She says this. God hates divorce. And for good reason. Christians must learn to hate what God hates, including divorce. I urge you in the power Christ provides to fight tirelessly for your marriage. Trust that God has given you all the resources you need to be faithful. Use this time to turbocharge your private prayer and scripture reading. Seek counsel from the church elders 
and older, wiser believers. If your husband agrees to go with you, great, but if not, go alone. The most important battle is in your own heart, resisting the voices of envy and discontent. Beg God for strength to forgive the past. Treat your husband kindly, one day at a time, especially when he doesn't deserve it. Of course, your marriage may still be torn asunder, despite your best efforts. I had to face the sad fact that restoration of my first marriage was not possible. Nonetheless, we know God's grace is sufficient in our weaknesses. Even though the valley of shadow of death, an apt description of divorce, God promises to walk with us. But for now, while your marriage still lives, there's hope. For yourself, for your family, and for the gospel, I pray you will firmly and finally put all thought of divorce behind you. Take up your cross and follow Christ in all things. God promises you he will find and bring you abundant life. Father, thank you for Laura Baxter and her willingness, Lord, to share her heart. She would describe it as the most painful days of her life. And yet she would allow your word to shape her thinking and she would be faithful to Matthew 19 and knowing that, Lord, you are gracious and you are kind and that you will give us the strength that we need. So, Lord, today I want to pray for the single person in our room. I pray, Lord, that they would use their singleness for the sake of the gospel. That they would not see themselves as less than or not fully complete. But that they would see themselves, Lord, as a child of you. And that you have a plan and a purpose in their singleness to use it for your honor and your glory. And so I pray that they would embrace that. That they would push into that. That, Lord, they would look for ways and opportunities to be used by you in their singleness where they're not held down by the things of this world or a location or bills necessarily even, Lord, but that they could go and live on mission for you. And so please, Lord, be with those that are single in our church that they would have a mindset of, I want to live in this season, whether it's a a short season or a long season, I want to live for the sake of the gospel. Pray, Lord, for our marriages at our church. I I ask that you would protect us from the evil one. I know, Lord, it is the desire of the evil one to kill, steal, and destroy. And there's nothing more he likes to kill, steal, and destroy than our marriages. Because they represent you and your love for the church. So I pray for protection. Help us, Lord, to fight for our marriages. In those moments when it's tough, we don't like each other, right? Lord, help us to just stay fighting, laying down our lives. I I like how Paul finishes out that Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husbands. And so I pray that our marriages would reflect this love and respect that you call us to. And then for the divorced, whether not married or, or remarried in the room, 
Lord, I pray that you would remind them that they are not damaged goods. That their life, although maybe hasn't gone as they planned, their marriage hasn't gone as they have planned, you don't look at them and we don't look at them and think any differently of them. And I pray today, Lord, that you would strengthen them in whether their singleness or their new marriage, Lord, that they would fight for their marriage, that they would live on mission for you, that they would look ahead and not behind them, that they would be reminded of their worth and their value, and that, Lord, you would use their current marriage to reflect your love for the church. Father, I know this is not a popular topic in our culture and even in the church world. But we're grateful that you would land us on Matthew 19 today. That you would cause us to have to reflect on our singleness, our marriages, our divorces, and just process them through the lens of your word and the authority of your word. So help us, Lord, to submit to your leadership in our lives no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in. In Jesus' Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's antiochbbc.org. God's best to you.